You should not be doing business with them merely because you like them, because right. that's a big component of the way people choose to make their decisions. You don't do business with them because they look like you or sound like you, whatever that happens to look like. Are you ready to transform your life? This is a no-nonsense show helping immigrants like you create generational wealth, even while working full-time. Get ready to take notes. Here's your host, Socket Jane. Welcome back, my Great to Wealth listeners. Today, we're talking to a gentleman who is a 30-year veteran in the investment industry. So a lot of wealth of knowledge, wealth of experience. He's seen multiple downturns, upturns, whatever we can imagine. His number one bestseller of a book he wrote, which is called Foolish, How Investors Get Worked Up and Worked Over by the System. I am very excited to bring you on. Gil, how are you? Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Gil. And you're dialing us from Houston, correct? That's correct. Houston, Texas. Houston, Texas. Beautiful town. So, Gil, we usually start this episode with not a whole lot of detailed introduction because your story is going to be beautiful. We're very interested in your story and think your background is going to get uncovered through the story. The way we kick off the show usually is the show is all about migration to wealth. The most important word there being migration, not necessarily the word wealth. And the way we look at migration is change and more importantly, intentional change towards creating a life by design. And wealth is more holistic for us with money being an essential component to it. So with that said, Gil, why don't you help us understand your migration story? Well, so my, I am third generation here in the U.S. My uh, great-grandparents came here from Germany and settled in the Texas and Arkansas regions. And my mother's family is Welsh, so England and Scotland. So they grew up, immigrated to central Texas. So I've grown up here in Houston, 63 years old, and got into the investment business almost 40 years ago and wow. uh, have built some wealth for myself and for the 200 clients that we do business with. That's awesome. So how did you get into the investment business before we talk about what you do today? Did you yeah. grow up thinking that you're going to be a wealth advisor? Did you not know what path you want to charter and fell into it? How did, well, how did that come to, along? There's a lot to unpack there. You know, so I grew up poor my parents were divorced when I was 10, so we had some financial hardship. And I found out later that one of the defining characteristics of a top producing stockbroker is financial trauma as a teenager. And it creates a resolve to wow. change your situation. And the stock brokerage business is one that's relatively easy to get into because it doesn't require any capital and it puts you right in a spot to have very high earnings potential. And so uh, I thought that the stock brokerage business would be a very good place for me, wanting to make a better life for myself and not having any resources to do so and establishing the resolve that I wanted to change my situation. So I did a study in 1989 for the brokerage firm that I worked for. They gave me the phone numbers of the top 100 advisors at the firm and they asked me to call them up and ask them 25 questions, profiling them. And the most common denominator among them was having financial trauma in their family mm -hmm. as a teenager, creating that resolve. So how did you, so I understand that. Let's dig deeper into that for a second. So of course you had the, it's unfortunate that you had that happening at a teenager or a very young age. How did that translate into you being exposed to the financial world? Understand that, why didn't you go start 
a startup or launched a business or why stock, right? How did you find that path? Two things. I'm a numbers guy and I can do mental math very well. That led me to get an economics degree and I could see sort of the big picture of how the economy worked and what mm-hmm. drove motivations, which is really what economics is about. It's the collision point between finance, politics, and motivation. And when I was in high school, despite the fact that I lived in a pretty decent neighborhood, we had financial trauma and my mother was just barely able to make ends meet. But I had a very wealthy fellow student at my school who I became best friends with. His doctor was a very well-to-do and prominent orthopedic surgeon in town and had fancy cars, Ferraris, and lived in the best part of town and you know went on the best vacations. And I noticed when I was about oh, maybe 12 or 13 years old that his life was very different than my life. I decided that I had to figure out how they lived their life and how I could make a life like theirs. And so that's why I decided to pursue my, the career path that I did. My God, that's amazing story, Gil, right? You turn your adversity around because, you know, yeah. usually these adversities can result in two different things. One is it can break you down and you go yeah. into a negative spiral where you, it's hard to come out of that. But the way you looked at that's it, of right. course, I'm sure that that path was hard, but you, you took charge of that and basically figured out a way, developed a resolve to get out of that. So now you're in the situation right. where you found that, okay, you want to be closer to the money. We found the brokerage firm, your stock market. It's kind of like you want to be in that field. Now, what happened there? Because you were very successful in that career. And then at some yes. point in time, you left that journey and started your own wealth management company. So help us understand yeah. that transition. So I'm going to give you a little bit of backstory about the advice business, and it'll help you understand the answer to the question that I'm going to give you. Uh, anybody can give you financial advice. But only two types of people can get paid for it. They either have to be a broker working for a brokerage firm, and they have to be obligated under the rules of registration that belong to FINRA. The Financial Industry Regulatory Authority is a self-governing body of the brokerage firms. You have to work for a brokerage firm, and you have to abide by their rules. Those rules allow conflicts of interest. They allow hiding of fees and commissions. They allow self-dealing and other components that drive profits for the firm. That's path number one. Path number two is that to get compensated for giving advice, you have to charge a fee, you cannot earn a commission, you cannot work for a brokerage firm, and you have to eliminate virtually all conflicts of interest and you have to act as a fiduciary. Essentially, we're talking about gray area inside of morality where the brokerage firms fight to own all of the gray area because they are allowed to, whereas in the other type of registration, I have to understand that gray area and fight to get my client to keep that gray area. So it's no man's land in what is moral, what is legal, what is ethical, what is right. The brokerage firm want to own all of that gray area, and I want to give all of that gray area to the client. That led to lots of conflict between me and my employer. And as my sense of morality got sharpened and sharpened and sharpened, it became more controversial for me to operate inside of a world where I saw my firm taking possession of that gray area where I thought the clients should own it. And we fought over that gray area light a lot. And I eventually told them I wasn't going to do it anymore. And so I left and switched registrations. 
So that's interesting. That so let, let's October, October of 2010. I'm glad you did that because I think that's the right thing to do, right? So kind of like let's go back to that the first situation. It's always yeah. interesting. You everyone everyone needs to pay attention to that one. That specific point because what you said was that these regulatory bodies allow the gray area to be it basically works in the favor of the advisor right that's right and if they're not yeah. the real fiduciary and we'll talk about fiduciary for a second in a little bit yeah. but essentially what were you basically saying is i know i'm putting words in your mouth so just tell me if i'm wrong so it's, far so uh, good <laughs> all right so what we're talking about is that most of these big institutional advisory firms what they're basically saying is they're taking the they're twisting the rules using the rules to their advantage by selling products and services that may not be in the best interest of the client or said other way it is in the best interest of the client but it helps them more as a institution rather than the client itself is that a true that's statement fair. that's fair yeah that's true that um, is insane they are, they are, and you know i don't want to totally throw them under the bus because there are some reasons why that's not a bad thing so it's not as though the investing community is getting pillaged by mm-hmm. the brokerage community i don't want to say that there are circumstances that are better handled by a brokerage firm than it would be by a fiduciary advisor and i'll give you some examples if a man with a, or family with a 2 million dollar estate and has five heirs and i don't know the person who has right. the estate the husband and the wife die and the heirs want to come to me and have me transfer that account that belonged to the parents break it up into five individual relationships with the inheritors and then they're all going to go buy real estate or do something else with the money there is absolutely no way i'm taking that client because the fiduciary responsibility is too great and the time period it might take me 2 months to do all the paperwork to grind through yeah. all of that and then they're all going to be gone i get right. paid up on a retainer basis as opposed to i would probably want to charge them 10 or 15,000 for running through all of the machinations to get that done for them that would be way better done on a brokerage platform working with a Merrill Lynch or some oh. other big firm i'm not in a position to handle that type of business so and there's that- an example where they wouldn't be harmed by that and would actually probably get better service than from me. Yeah. And I think in that specific example is when you say you're not in the position to help that specific case that you're talking about is it because of the scale? Is it because of the infrastructure? Is it because of the responsibility that you're undertaking especially if the client's going to go away because most of the advice that you're going to tell them you don't know if that's going to be implemented or not. How yeah. where, where where do you feel it's all of that um okay. we have a 5 million dollar minimum so the whole household would be below our threshold our average account has over 7 million dollars in it i cannot handle five accounts that have you know 800 thousand in this case 600,000 dollars in them whatever the number is and they are probably not my best profile type of client had possibly not had any wealth of their own i'm not in a position to coach them and teach them i just don't have the bandwidth to counsel with them and do it especially when they could pay somebody a commission to handle all that business get it all buttoned up and they right. go their separate ways where my business model kind of relies on we have a very long term relationship and if i'm being rented for a very narrow window of time 
my heart's just not going to be in it. So yeah, uh, not I think, to I think it's also so correct. No, I think that makes sense. Lots of parts to it. So. <clears throat> that makes sense. But I think the just if I were to distill that conversation, what really was basically saying is not all brokerage firms created equally. Not all fiduciaries are created equally. So you have to do your proper due diligence of whose interest the brokerage or the advisor is working for, right? Are they really that, working that for yourself? Or it's kind of funny when I was exploring my path, Gil, and I don't usually share the story much. I was exploring joining a financial advisory firm and everything was going well until the end. They basically said, how are you going to make money, Sakit? I'm like, what do you mean? After like, you need to start selling insurance products. I'm like, what do you mean I need to start selling them? If it's in the best interest of, a, of the, my client, that makes sense. But like, no, otherwise you won't be able to survive. I'm like, I don't want to be part of that business where I'm yeah. selling something because I have to benefit. If I'm selling something that benefits a client, inadvertently benefits me as well, I'm fine with that. Right. So yeah. that was kind of like my exposure. So your comment ri- hits right at heart. Of course, I didn't yeah. know the working of the industry. I just knew what I was told. I didn't like that idea. Well, the insurance products are notorious for having very high commissions. Right. And if your business isn't fully scaled, every prospect that you run across, the first thing that you're going to try to do is put the highest commission product to right. work for them so that your job is easier. And that's not illegal. It's not the kind of business that I would want, but I actually got started in that industry. I was never a big fan of insurance and my business scaled relatively quickly so that I could escape the vacuum, if you will, that would be drawing me towards high commission product. I just didn't like the whole ecosystem and I put up with it for far too long. And I managed to cobble together a pretty honorable business. And frankly, I think a lot of people in the brokerage business do. It's just an uphill battle that I got tired of fighting and I just felt like I really needed to switch to the full fiduciary model and many honorable advisors just never get there. So that was just something I decided. So that's awesome, Gil. I know we were talking about, I'm glad you did that. I think that's the right thing that shows a lot. I'm sure it takes a lot of courage, but it also shows your morality, right? The reasoning for you was less, I'm sure there was, there's always a financial component to do anything but it was really driven through your morality issues, the conflict of morality issues that you were having with your, how you're serving with your clients and how you wanted to actually serve them. In the end, my business is about six times the size of the practice that I left behind and my compensation is much higher. So doing the right thing has benefits to me, but you cannot lead with that. Your example of the insurance transaction was the leading edge of the tip of the spear is self-serviced interests of the investing community versus the tip of the spear in my world is to do whatever is best for the client and let the chips fall where they may. And yes, I have benefited from that, but I cannot allow my compensation to ever get to the tip of the spear. Yeah. You know, I think it's kind of like you and I are cut from the same cloth, right? So if you add value to somebody, you will get the right compensation. No doubt. But if you're starting a conversation, this is good for me you should buy this product. Of course, you'll never say that, but that's essentially yeah. the messaging you're telling that buy this product because it's going to help me. That's and just not a good that, but Normally, the way that comes across is it feels like a pitch from the very beginning. People would list the six reasons why you would want to do this, and right. they would never tell you about the six reasons why you wouldn't want to do it. And you and right. I both know for every decision, there are both pros and cons to how it can work out. In my line of work, I just lay all my cards on the table. Here's the way this choice should be thought about. Here are the 
analytics of the various ways to solve this problem. I think this one is better than this one. I don't care which one you choose. And as a matter of fact, I get paid the same way no matter what you choose to do. That type of presentation tends to lead to a lot more trust than right. let me tell you why you know you should buy this water bottle right here and listing all of the reasons why without ever telling you you know what the downside might be or what my conflicts of interest might be. I love that. I love. I think we've set the stage, right? So I think what we're basically saying is the last 15, 20 minutes of conversation, if we were to distill in few aspects, one really is understand who you're working with, right? Just That's because right. they are associated with a big institution or a small institution, you have to make sure they're working in your interest That's as right. a client, right? The yeah. second thing really is more about work with somebody who has the same aptitude, attitude, more values as yours. Just because somebody yes. may be very successful doing that does not necessarily mean that the right advisor for you, right? Yeah. And I would add that you should not be doing business with them merely because you like them, because right. that's a big component of the way people choose to make their decisions. You don't do business with them because they look like you or sound like you, whatever that happens to look like. And the more money you have, the better choices you're going to have. My services are unavailable to up and coming start out investors. I just, not that I have my pick of clients, but with a $7 million average balance across 200 clients, uh, there's only so many clients I can handle. And I, I just don't have any need to take the smaller ones. Well, when you are a smaller one, you don't have as many choices is my point. So Correct. you just have to look out for your interest. And the more you understand about the ecosystem, what my book explains, the better choices you're going to be able to make. It's going to give you better discernment. Yeah. So Gil, we'll go back to something that you had started a career with economics, right? Yeah. So because economics gives you, I don't think you become smarter by taking any course in college, but it gives you a way of looking at the world. That's really what That's I'm more right. interested in, right? So yeah. chances are, If you were like me, you've probably forgotten everything you learned in economics, but you carried those, some of the core principles throughout your life, right? So That's let's right. help understand that. Let's break it down. Why having a macro level view from the economics, from geopolitics and what all we need to do, what role does that play into your investing career? Then we'll go specifics into what people, how should people look at investments? That is a fantastic question. The way I would answer that is, When you understand a concept like climate change, I think that a lot of the argument about climate change is much the same as the argument about acid rain from 30 mm -hmm. years ago or the, the impending nuclear debacle from 50 years ago or the ozone layer from 20 years ago. All of these were disasters that are just on the cusp of manifesting. And guess what? None of them have really manifested. And in the climate change debate, it started out 19 years ago as global warming. And then we found out that the globe was actually cooling and we had to change the argument to climate change. These are uh, control constructs that lead to power shifts and the people in charge of the narrative are the ones that benefit from the power shift. So if you view the global system for 
energy consumption, for example, you're quickly going to conclude that I don't care what happens with global warming, whether it exists or doesn't exist. And I would argue that it doesn't. But irrespective of that, if you understand economics, you'll understand very quickly that based on what we know today, the world does not have enough sunshine and the world Mm -hmm. does not have enough wind to power our needs. And when you get into a mobile situation where you want to drive a car, you're going to find some shortcomings to an all electric world. And the base load of the grid cannot be run off of anything but nuclear, coal, natural gas, or liquids. And so that being the case, you're going to understand that being invested in energy, traditional energy, is probably a lot better than the world would want you to believe based on their construct of what climate change looks like when, in fact, The reality is we're going to be burning natural gas for a very long time. And I think it's an exceptional investment accordingly. So that would be an answer to your question about what does my fundamental understanding of economics, how does that manifest in current investment policy? Yeah, isn't that interesting? Because if you just look at the narrative outside of the supply, outside of the demand constraints, you're basically going to say, yes, what narrative is being told to us in the news and in the common mainstream news, that that's a true news, right? But you said something very important. A lot of that is driven through, you didn't use the exact same words, it's been driven through some agendas, right? That's right. It's the power struggle. It's somebody's trying to shift the narrative in a certain way. And while that may be true, we're not here to discuss whether it's true or not, but I think you, meaning an investor, a sophisticated investor, needs a way to filter through all this noise. And unless you have a way, a framework to filter that, you won't be able to make a decision. You'll be paralyzed. You'll be a flag that's flapping in the wind of the current news that's blowing you one direction or another. And people over-assume that changing their investment philosophy is just an adaptation to the change of the times. And yeah. when you look at the way taxes get levied, you're really better off looking 20 or 30 years into the future and coming up with what you believe that's going to look like, positioning your money for that and not touching it. You know, yeah. trying to find the new hot thing, whether it be legalization of marijuana being broad, widespread or whether it be this trend or that trend, people believe that they have too much at stake and try to change their investment policy too frequently, which generates tax friction, commissions, fees, expenses, and the risk of being wrong, which is Mm -hmm. very difficult to recover from. And I would just encourage your listeners to have a much longer perspective and not get dragged into what current news says is the current thing. It's kind of very interesting. I love this conversation, Gil. So thank you for bringing these points up. You know, one of the biggest problems that I feel and I had the same when I started out my investing career, is the, we don't start out with a thesis, right? Most investors are saying, hey, you know what? My neighbor told me Tesla is going to go up. I'm just going to buy Tesla. It's a gambling adventure. It becomes a gamble. And if you look at the data, stocks go up in 81% of all 12-month time periods. If you found a slot machine that paid off with 81% of all 100 or let's call it 365 pulls, mm-hmm. 81% of those slot machines would pay off. You would never leave to go to the bathroom and you would hire an armed guard to sit at that slot machine right. to make sure that nobody else used it while you went to the bathroom because you would not want to interrupt 
the repetitive nature of the data that says that stocks go up in 81% of all circumstances, you would be long stocks all the time and you right. would not be making abrupt changes. But most people don't understand that data. So there's their base thesis that you're talking about needs to be something different than chasing the current trend. Yeah, Carl, like, I think you need to develop a thesis. Like, for example, we always talk about having a diversified portfolio, which I know you're a big fan of. We were just talking sure. before we went on air that not all things are created equally, right? So uh, you want to have yeah. a diversified portfolio where you have a mix of real estate, energy, private businesses, your stock market, your public markets, your bonds, all of that combination, your gold maybe. Absolutely. Everything has a role to play in. But however, the world, unfortunately, the way it works is the only industry, the only asset class that's the most commonly understood asset class happens to be the paper assets, right? Kind of like the stocks, the bonds, the mutual funds, right? Gold and silver, and energy, you got to figure out what aspect these asset class play in your strategy, right? I think I see that, and I would love to hear your That's perspective right. on that. Most people are afraid of making these assessments by themselves because of two reasons. One is they think somebody else is smarter than them to have a thesis. That's one. The second is they feel like somebody else understands these asset class better than them, Right. So I would love to get your perspective on whether these assumptions are correct, at least in your long career as an advisor. And if they are correct, how do you handle that for your advisors? Because I personally feel, and I can feel it, that you have a teacher's mind and teacher's heart, that you actually want to educate your investors to yep. make sure they are better off should they decide to ever leave you. Hopefully they never do. Hopefully you're doing an amazing job, which I believe you do. But if they do, they're better off in making their own yep. decisions once they after that interaction. Help me give that perspective. Sure. I think that their fear that you're talking about is probably something a little different than that somebody else understands better than they. I think that it has to do with what has been proven time and time again by psychologists who have revealed that the pain of losing is a more acute sensation than the pleasure of winning. This has been proven predominantly by Nicholas Tversky and Daniel Kahneman in particular, proved that when people sense a loss, if you lose $100, you feel it on a scale of a 10th. But if you win $100, you feel that on a scale of about a three. And mm. so people are wired to be more averse to risk than the mathematical value of the dollars in play. And that creates a natural aversion to make changes. It creates a gambler's mentality. We get social affirmation from our wins, which may not be indicative of actually having any true financial success. People just don't like to be wrong. We don't like to be embarrassed in front of our friends. We tell people about our successes, but we hide our failures from them. There's just a big ecosystem of what that failure looks like. And it wasn't until I had more substantial assets that I really began to make good decisions. And I think the turning point for me was at the point which I was willing to lose. When I became willing to lose my performance really took a big tick up. I would buy things that I knew were dangerous. I thought it would be to my advantage. 
They seemed to be valued correctly. And I thought that I had an inherent advantage from the fact that I just didn't really know what was going to happen next. Warren Buffett has a famous saying that says that maximum prices come with maximum certainty and minimum prices come with minimum certainty. If you have minimum certainty, what you're saying is that that is a very risky position and you would have to be willing to lose in order to participate in the purchase of minimum price assets. And that's the point that I reached because I was willing to lose. And people who play the investing game and don't have a willingness to lose merely are looking for the good part of what it has to deliver. And if that's the case, you're going to get surprised with the downside. Then you're going to liquidate because you really weren't prepared to lose. And it creates a very large cesspool of very poor performance. So how do you connect the dots here, Gil? Because one thing that's happening is that you've been told, cut your losses, right? So off or capitalize on your profits, like whichever way you want to say that, that don't be too greedy. Don't be wrong too bad. If you want to be wrong, limit your wrong, but don't be too good either. If you're already at good, capitalize it and move on, right? So when we look at that, and I want to also harp on one point you made, which is more about when you had assets of a certain order, that's when your performance changed because you were willing to lose, right? And what would be your advice to somebody who is actually starting out? They have the assets, they're not there where you need to be. They may not be $7 million, but they are maybe 2 or $3 million net worth. They have the assets, but they just don't have, yep. they don't feel that they have enough, right? Because it's a very subjective point. Do I have the assets at a good enough point that I'm willing to lose a little bit or not? Because for some, that number may be $15 million. For some, that number may be $100 million. For some, that number may be $2 million. So how yeah, do yeah. you recommend yeah. us looking at that? Okay, so there's be, let's call it five points. One point would be liquidity requirements Mm -hmm. because people could be lured into taking risk because they think it's going to go well. And then they have the sudden epiphany, oh my gosh, I needed that money to make the down payment on my next house. Well, if that was the case, you should never have sacrificed your liquidity to begin with. Right. It could be volatility. Commercial real estate has volatility, but you can't see it because it's not being priced on a statement every month. So visibility to volatility would be another of those components. It could be tax friction where earnings of interest on a bond are taxable as ordinary income, whereas a dividend is capped at a 23.8% tax rate or half of whatever your earned income tax rate is. There's just all these various components of how a decision should be made as to whether to participate or not. And then you get into deployment of the capital and having to deal with the ecosystem that you've created for yourself and how your other money is invested, liquidity, real estate, minerals, oil and gas, or private equity or the cash flow of the business that you're actually in, stocks and bonds and interest and money funds and all these various components, you know, it has to be viewed in the totality of what it is that you're trying to accomplish and make sure that you stay in your lane and don't get drawn into doing something you wouldn't otherwise have done just simply because you have the fear of missing out. Yeah. So would you think that, let me ask a very controversial question because I'm going to challenge you on something really quick here. Does everyone need an advisor? Or maybe better ask the question, who does not need an advisor? Buying the equity market in a low-cost index fund Mm 
such as the S&P 500, mm -hmm. is a fantastic way to participate. And if you merely need market risk, you can buy the S&P 500 in the form of an ETF, which will generate almost no fees and almost no taxes for as long as you own it. And mm -hmm. if piling up equity risk, which is what someone should be pursuing if they believe my 81% scenario from a little while ago and, and you're willing to give up your liquidity because you can sell that vehicle, but you probably wouldn't want to, then a very simple situation for somebody who's making their you know $6,000, $7,000 IRA or Roth IRA contribution, you don't need an advisor for that. You can call Vanguard up or Fidelity or Schwab or any of those firms and for very little cost, purchase some exposure, which is really what you should be wanting. An advisor really comes into play when you've got more at stake uh, the costs of hiring an advisor are diminished by the sheer size of what you're dealing with. And the complexity of what you're dealing with is beyond the scope of either what you're capable of or wanting mm -hmm. to deal with. We have a lot of clients that are plenty smart that just don't want to deal with it. And an example right. would be, I understand tax law well enough to do my own tax return. I don't do that. The stakes are too high that I were to make a mistake. And for $15,000 a year, I can hire a CPA that makes sure that all my T's are crossed and my I's are dotted. And I'm happy to pay that to make it somebody else's problem. In this world, the majority of our clients are plenty smart and understand this. They want to make sure that I understand and that I am operating every day looking for ways to advantage them so that they can go live their life and play golf and travel and run their business yeah. and, and spend time with their family. This is not something they want to get wrong, and it's something that they're willing to pay somebody else to do. I'm not going to say that I can run circles around everybody else, but I do understand enough of the rules and the implications uh, and people are willing to hire me to work that system for them. So that's the person who should hire an advisor. No, I love that. So Gil, one thing to help us understand how do clients, so we talk about the one of the biggest factor of maybe folks being paralyzed to make a decision, right? Which is one of the things is the fear of loss is bigger than the joy of gain. And I'm paraphrasing that. And, and that is true because I've seen that. But now let's go deeper into that. Are they okay with an advisor being wrong? Because uh, not every advisor, and I don't know about you, but it's not like every move that I make is going to work. Some moves are not going to work, right? Not because they're outside of my control, not because yeah, I didn't do right. my due diligence. So are they okay with that loss? Because that somebody else made that loss, even well, though think, it's their loss? Well, that's a really good question. So the way I think you should look at it, and this is a matter of perspective, there's no direct answer to your question, except I would say that an advisor, even a brokerage advisor whose interests may not be fully aligned with yours, is probably a better choice than going alone. If you mm -hmm. look at the statistics, and there's many studies that have been written or done on the history of how good a decision or bad a decision do the typical investor make, the typical investor is always late. They leave too early. They're not patient. I think the study from Dalbar says that 60 or 70% of all the returns that could be gleaned from investing in stocks is lost by the typical investor just simply from poor timing. So right. when you think about the monumental hurdle that the typical person has in one, not understanding the system, and two, not understanding themselves, 
they are usually way better off hiring an advisor because the advisor is simply going to be wrong less often than you. So right. your question was phrased, you know, and is an advisor always going to be right? That's not the question. The question should be, is an advisor going to be right more often than I would be without the advisor? And sure. that's a very different hurdle than being right all the time. And it's a very low standard that all I have to be is more right than the typical investor. I'm going to be at least two times as right, if not three times as right, and still be wrong a lot. Right. I love that because I think it's always right. To, there's always a debate whether you should hire an advisor or not, including in mind because I'm a syndicator and a capital raiser. So for me, it's the same thing. It's like this every deal that I put my hand into is going to work. I think we all have what we can control. And we all have that things that we can't control, right? If we miss on the things that we control, shame That's on right. us. But if we miss something that is out of our control, yeah. like COVID, like printing money, like inflation and all that good stuff, we can't really control that. Now, did we take advantage of that in our career? Yes, we did. But will at some point it's going to go work against us? Yes, it will. So I think it's just a push and pull, I believe, right? So yeah. that's an important piece. So yeah. Gil, I love this conversation, man. I think you and I can go at it for hours at end. I do want to ask you one question. And before we shift to the last part of our episode here is in what are the three actionable insights you can leave our listeners with, right? So if they are in their wealth building stage where they still have income coming in, they are trying to build their passive income stream, multiple income streams of wealth through investing or through whatever vehicle they choose, what are some of the two, three actionable insights you can give them? First thing I would say is to develop your skills in mental math, mm -hmm. your ability to decide what is better for me just by being able to quickly determine the value of two different courses of action. It's the same kind of concept as calculating how big the tip is going to be at the local restaurant. I normally leave a 20% tip if the service is at least decent or pretty good. And it's very easy for me to find out just by shifting the decimal point on my bill to the left one digit, I can pretty easily come up with what 10% looks like and I simply double that. So these little tricks of the way to calculate what does 20% look like and is 20% better than this or that. Working on mental math skills would be the first thing that I would challenge your listeners to, to think about. The second mm -hmm. thing would be to understand fees and expenses and the drag to returns when you pay those expenses versus other choices that might have been free. And there are tons of free or near free options in the marketplace that are not inferior to the much more expensive versions of them that the brokers talk to you about. So low awesome. cost index funds being one of those. And the other thing that is probably the most important would be to understand the tax code because there's certain behaviors and certain types of investment products that have very bad tax outcomes if you understood the tax code and what it encourages. They're in current tax code, they're, the maximum tax that you're going to pay on most things is about 43%. And the minimum tax that you can pay on the same vehicle could be zero. Right. So that range of choices has a lot to do with how you structure your investments and how you understand the code. And if you don't understand it, you really would be way better off. If you look at it that way, you could almost double your returns if mm -hmm. you avoided the highest tax cost vehicles. And right. so that could have a very profound impact 
on your results over time. Amen to that. So Gil, because I always I tell folks that don't take pride in paying taxes. And that's a completely a different debate for a different topic, a different Absolutely. day, because you have to make sure yeah. that the tax incentives and tax laws are designed to figure out a way to make, to save taxation as well, while being productive members of the society, right? I think there's some sort of a patriotism sure. to say, I'm going to pay 42% taxes, but oh, by the way, at same point, I'm going to put as much yeah. money as I can in 401k, right? So if you want to pay most taxes, go pay Understood. 401k, don't take 401k, right? So it's an interesting, I think, and if you are able to save yep, that 42% of the tax, that's an immediate rate of return. Your risk goes down drastically if you're able yep, to so. zero that out. It's just an interesting way. I think folks need to start paying attention to that's that, true. and hopefully they will. So we're now moving towards the last part of the section. So, Gil, we were talking about the key insights, right? Let's shift gears. What would you tell your 20-year-old self as the key insights? Are they going to be any different than what we just shared with our listeners? You know, I think understand your weaknesses and understand yourself and uh, back to the tip of the spear, always think about how you're interacting with other people. And when you're interacting with a customer or somebody who could be your customer to put yourself in their position back to the golden rule, how would you want to be mm -hmm. treated and treating other people in the way that is disadvantageous to you is most often what is advantageous to them and is what will right. most often give you what you want. And so giving other people what they want is the easiest path to get what you want. And so I think being others focused is really the way to model your life towards maximum prosperity. Perfect. Okay, well, we're running short of time here because I know we both have hard stops here. So Thank you again for jumping on the call. Gil, where can people find you and your work? My firm is called Segment Wealth Management, segmentwm.com. You can buy my book on Amazon, Foolish. Just put in Foolish Book and it'll come up. And people can sign up on my website for a blog that we write, which is sort of educational. Nobody will ever call you. We don't sell the list. You just sign up for it, no obligation whatsoever. And that's segmentwm.com forward slash blog. Great, Gil. Thanks a lot. We'll make sure we include all of that in the show notes below. Gil, again, thank you for a fascinating conversation. I have a feeling you're going to be coming back on the show. It was, I enjoyed the conversation immensely because it's a topic that's near and dear to my heart. So thank you again, Gil. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. If you got value from this episode, you might consider sharing this content with a friend. But most importantly, be sure to take action on what you've learned. One way you can take the next step is to connect directly with Socket on an investor call. That link is waiting for you in the show notes below. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Please consult your own advisors when making any investment decisions. Keep listening. We'll see you on the next episode.